The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewees and guests featured and may not reflect those of Forsyth Bar Limited or Forsyth Bar Asia. This podcast is produced for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Forsyth Bar or Forsyth Bar Asia may have investments in the companies mentioned in this podcast. Hello and welcome to Doing Business in China podcast, where we look at the most important themes in China and we interview industry experts that are doing business in those areas. My name is David Milhouse and I'm head of China research for Foresight Bar Asia. So today we're going to talk about a range of topics because I've got quite a unique guest, um, joined with Mitch Presnick. So Mitch has been a very successful American entrepreneur who's been in China for almost 30 years. So part of his stories are he was with Budweiser for eight years, introducing them to China before going on to launch Super 8 Hotels, which has been an unbelievable success story. So I'll include Mitch's full bio in the show notes, and I'll also include a link to Mitch's TEDx talk, which discusses his career in China and some of his strategies about doing business in China. But Mitch, welcome to the show. Thank you for your time. Thanks, David. It's great to be here, man. Thank you. What I'd like to start with, Mitch, is obviously, as I said at the start, you have been in China for a long time, actually since the 8th of the 8th, 1988. What I wanted to start on is your early experiences in China and what initially attracted you to, to move to the country and want to do business there. I mean, I, I'll just mention there, there's there's a long association I've had with the number eight, and eight is a significant number in China because in Chinese it sounds a little bit like uh, fa to get rich, ba fa to get rich. So it just happens to be that completely happenstance, without any planning, I ended up landing in China for the very first time of my career in China on August eighth, nineteen eighty eight, at eight p.m. By the way, wow. uh, on flight UA eight five two, in and from seat thirty eight A, I still have the ticket. So I mean, it is just weird, and since then. And of course, there's been a lot of other interesting eight associations, not least of which is I acquired the rights for the Super 8 Hotel brand, an American-owned brand of economy motels. And uh, it just, it wasn't Super 7 or Super 3, it was Super 8, and it just was completely, uh, as they say in Chinese, EY, unintended. Yeah, so I mean, I, just as a sidebar, that seems to be interesting for some people, and that's why the Chinese media has dubbed me Iga Gen Ba Yu Yuan Fan Da La Wai, a foreigner who has destiny with the number 8, Fantastic. which I've always thought was a nice thing. But I came to China um, at the strong recommendation of my great uncle Mike, who who, um, who had come back from a trip with his um, with his group Est, which was an early form of you know one of these mind expanding groups um, back in '83, and Uncle Mike met a very famous American who had stayed behind named Sidney Rittenberg, and and Sidney kind of became good friends with Uncle Mike. Uh, my great uncle came back and he was very excited when he saw me at a family event. I was 16 at the time. And he pulled me aside and said, "You're an entrepreneur. The U.S. is in, in is not in the ascendant anymore. You need to go to China. That's where you must go. And besides, the family needs to figure out how to do business with these guys because they're going to be running the world. Now, in '83, Chinese were driving um, bicycles." wearing mouse suits with chickens on the back. So it seemed like a bizarre thing to hear, but, but you know, Uncle Mike was a very successful entrepreneur himself, and he was from my direct line, my, grand, my father's father's youngest brother. He was the most successful of us. He had self-made his way into Upper East Side 
uh, patio apartment on you know with you know with great views and he was great friends with Woody Allen and people so I always admired him and looked up to him and he always kept an eye on me so when he told me to go to China I took it pretty seriously but I have to admit I didn't want to go because at the time I thought Cantonese was Mandarin and when he was telling me to go learn Mandarin I just couldn't <laughs> imagine learning Cantonese it's what I thought I'd be learning um, I was very pleasantly surprised when I audited my first uh, college Chinese course and discovered that Mandarin uh, wasn't Cantonese but growing up in New York when you know you'd hear Chinese people talking to you from a Chinese restaurant or wherever, it sounded like Cantonese, and they called it Chinese. So I assumed that's what it was. I didn't have the knowledge at the time to understand there were different dialects and so forth. So yeah, the early uh, reason was my my family gave a recommendation, and I was uh, uh, not on the first recommendation, but on the second when I saw him again when I was 19 and I was in college at the time, uh, smart enough to say, okay, I'll investigate this, and I discovered he was uh, what I thought was correct and I decided to apply to a program at at Peking University um, which is uh, a school that was far better on on the balance uh, than the school I was going to undergrad and I didn't uh, really understand the difference at the time so knowing that I wasn't going to get into Peking University on the merits of it I thought better better that I write an essay about how I was going to try to build a, a business bridge between the US and China and the admissions office at Peking University told me that was the first time they had ever received an essay from a foreigner saying that they wanted to study at the university for that purpose and they decided to make an exception and to let in uh, let in a guy who didn't necessarily have the grades and it's 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 been a great association for 30 years they've kind of cut me a little bit of slack and I've cut them a little bit of slack Fantastic. Um, and it's been a wonderful friendship for all that time I mean we'll jump into your businesses soon but I mean I, I saw that comment as well on your on your TED talk and it, it's an interesting comment I mean 30 years ago can you talk about the environment between the US and China or, or foreign investors in general in China and you know how much has it changed over the last you know, 20 30 years that you've been involved in the market sure well I mean we won't go too far back but we could I think it would be fair to give to give your your listeners a, a little bit of a historical perspective here, so uh, you know October first, nineteen forty nine, Mao declared the founding of the People's Republic of China, and between forty nine and seventy one, there was really no contact between the United States and China. In seventy one, Kissinger went on a secret mission, and in seventy two, Nixon came for the state visit. So, so the United States, if you will, went over there and and helped China out of isolation. China was very much like like North Korea's view today, isolating, and they had terrible and tumultuous uh, disconnects in their society. Policy-driven, the you know, Hundred Flowers movement, the uh, Cultural Revolution, and other movements, which which created an enormous amount of tumult in the country. So, coming out of that period, now seventy-two, the U.S. Was, was helping China out of isolation, and I just think it's interesting. In the ensuing years, China has now become the bastion of free trade and the bastion of of, of environmental protection amongst world-leading countries. It's just a very interesting change of positions, and. It it all happened in the last 20, 30 years. But when I arrived, uh, really, they were 10 years into the reform and opening movement, which started with Deng Xiaoping assuming control of the leadership of the country and then uh, declaring that a black cat or a white cat was a good cat as long as it killed mice. Okay. Uh, so the idea was that he was going to open up the idea of free enterprise and allow Chinese to engage their 5,000-year predilection to 
to creating a better life for them and their families. I mean, a country that has gone from absolute abject poverty with a GDP per capita of 800 per capita now to over 8,000 per capita, a 10x improvement in the 30 years that I've been there. So when I look now at starting, you know, with basically bicycle traffic jams in Beijing and a population of 5 million to massive car traffic jams, unfortunately, even with cars only allowed to, 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 to go on the roads on alternating days um, and skyscrapers everywhere and, and some of the most interesting things happening in technology and academia. China actually is very different than, than the U.S. and always has been a little more unified in that it, it, it takes government, academia, and, and industry, and they can coordinate in a way uh, that U.S. and other Western countries cannot because the, the country kind of runs by a board of directors, if you will, called the Politburo. Sure. Um, they sort of bring in their peers. It's sort of an opt-in, sort of the way generals are usually brought into the general ranks of, of, a, of a military. Mm-hmm. Um, they're sort of picked and selected by their peers, and they're selected on character measures, and they're selected on capability measures. But anyway, you've got a bunch of folks that, that at least to the extent that this is useful, they can think the same way, and that they can make unified decisions, and they can get everybody going. So, um, so the things that they're doing now in that regard are very different than the things they were doing then, but that hasn't changed much. They're still able to create a vertically integrated set of policies and implement them at a speed that we would find surprising. And while it doesn't necessarily engage the invisible hand of capitalism, they're already very capitalist, so they kind of have that in their mother's milk anyways. Um, so for them to then make the jump to to this level is, is nothing short of extraordinary. To credit fuel their way into the Club of 30, which they're now in the process of doing, has never been done by a country on this scale. But then again, China's not just any country. They're a country with a 5,000-year written history, and they are three-time champions of the world economy, and they're on the way to, to, to the fourth. For them, they see themselves in that historical context. It's useful for us in the West to take a moment to empathize with their particular worldview because it helps us understand why they do the things they do and how they do the things they do, and it can also help you extrapolate out into what you can expect from the future. Fantastic. You, you made an interesting point. I mean, obviously, growth has been incredibly strong, and you've seen a number of Chinese companies do unbelievably well. Interesting enough, for, as a, a foreign person doing business in China, you've been successful in a lot of different verticals, whether it be hotels, consumer-facing, your experience with BARD, and now as the fund. So I'm interested in, in your thoughts about what strategies you've been able to be successful in employing in China, because I read one of your recent quotes, which is, mm-hmm. a lot of people want to do business in China, but not all of them have the winning approach. So can you talk me through this and what sort of strategy the you've win, employed which has helped you win in China? And the winning approach? Sure, sure. Well, well, the first is the one I just described is trying to look at the world from their point of view to at least empathize. Whether we agree or not, it's always a good exercise to put yourself on the other side of the table and say, hey, where are they facing? Because it's not exactly like they're sitting around with no problems. I mean, it's a challenging place for them too. I mean, there, there's an enormous amount of competition for business people to get to the so-called first rung of the ladder or be relegated relegated to and having all their progeny relate, relegated to an underclass forever. That is the perception. So so underlying a lot of this is a fierce sense of 
urgency that they do not want to be uh, the ancestor cursed by all of their progeny for not having gotten them to the first rung on the ladder. So that drives a lot of that. And that, of course, creates a mindset of expectations on themselves and a scarcity mindset, which tends to, again, drive. So if you want to know where that urgency and that that almost unbelievable drive that, 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 that to overcome challenges and to, and to unify around common ideas and to present a powerful unified front, that is underlying a lot of that. So the empathy is part of it. And I think whether you're going into a tiny country uh, like Haiti or you're going into China, it's useful to ask the question, what can I offer? Sure. Budweiser, even though at the time they were the largest beer brand in the world by volume and by value, uh, when we entered China, and I had a good mentor there because I worked directly for August A. Bush III. I was I was very grateful to to win his confidence, and uh, and I ran uh, government affairs for the company for a long time. And and the one thing I can tell you is that's exactly how Budweiser came into China. And it's no accident that we were coming in as sort of a late entry amongst foreign beer brands um, trying to come in, but we came in very differently. We showed up. And we would show up in a second-tier market that many of the, the other beer brands wouldn't even bother with. And we wouldn't even approach the biggest wholesaler in that market. We'd go to the second or the third, and we'd be sitting in a room uh, with somebody who had, you know, uh, you know uh, stains on their shirt, and their hair was must, and they looked like they just woke up. And we came in and bowed very low uh, to these guys, and we said, you know what? All the other beer companies are asking you to pay for the, per, uh, for the point of sale items that you place. We're going to give those to you. Other companies are promising you X dollars on marketing support. We're going to offer you 10X marketing dollars. We're going to do all of this to prove to you that we're a good partner. And once you've seen that, not because we're going to tell you that, but we're going to show you that, we are at some point going to have a lot of brand power. But that's a tomorrow problem. Today, we're going to come in as the world's largest hotel, or the world's largest beer brand, and we're going to come in hat in hand, and we're going to come in very humbly because we are trying to figure out what we can offer you. We know that while you may be in a second-tier market and you're not even the biggest in that market, but we understand that you are one of the kings of this little market, and so we will show respect. We will see what we can do to offer. What can I offer became our primary question when we drove our business in the market. Now, here's what happened over the course of five years. By doing that, we created goodwill. Because first of all, they agreed with our approach because that's actually how they looked at it. They didn't see themselves as a guy with egg stains on their tie. They saw themselves as the, the maybe not number one, but number two king of a little fiefdom. And they wanted to be treated like that. And there's nothing wrong with giving face to somebody and, and, and bowing low. So we did. And by doing so, in all of those myriad markets where we entered, we created a massive amount of brand power. And then we went back and we flipped it around. And we said, okay, guess what? Now you're paying for all the POS items. Guess what? You're paying for our marketing. Oh, and by the way, um, you know how we used to do 180-day payment terms? Yeah, now it's prepayment or you don't get product. And by the way, if you don't heave two, we're going to go to the first largest who sent us seven letters and wants to take over the account. Yeah. So we weren't stupid. We were actually crazy like a fox to do that, although the other beer brands thought we were crazy and they thought we were wrecking the market by spoiling everybody. But the reality was that we approached them the way they wanted us to approach them, not the way foreigners want to be treated. Fantastic. Interested in, uh, in going to Super 8 in a little bit more detail. Um, you talked about your principles, which were fantastic and, and obviously worked because you were able to scale the business. 
incredibly quickly. Uh, but can you maybe touch on some of the challenges you face in scaling it and I guess any advice that you would give outside of your core principles to people looking to get into China in terms of potential obstacles they, they may face? Sure. Well, I mean, I think when you're entering any market uh, with any in any sector, uh, market being a country or any sector within that country, there are some rules that apply universally, right? And, and one of those rules is that... Um, you've got a value chain. Mm -hmm. And there are inefficient value chains and there are efficient value chains. Anybody coming in with a more efficient model to allow a value chain to express its full potential is going to eventually be rewarded with, uh, with, you know, with development progress. I knew coming into China in 88 that they were not ready for ideas like that. And I was a grad student anyway, and I didn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of, to be honest with you, at the time. So, you know, it wasn't like, you know, I mean, I was really a high wire act. But I mean, but to be honest, I thought at the time we were coming with, with, with Super 8, we looked at a fragmented economy hotel market, which was not benefiting from brand power. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you had owners and guests and service providers all basically at the whim of one very powerful dominant value chain member, which was the online travel agents. Because sure. remember, in the US and in Europe, the hotel brands came first, and in New Zealand for that matter, and everywhere. Sure. Uh, the brands came first and the online travel agents came later. But in China, because of the of, of just historical reasons of when they developed and how, the hotel brands in China, the domestic hotel came after the online travel agents, right? So C-Trip and Elong and the other online travel agents were there. So they sort of stood astride this massively fragmented market. And they loved it because if you wanted any kind of distribution power for your little 100-room economy equivalent hotel in, in Dalian, then you must make sure you don't run afoul of the emperor, which is C-Trip. And I was able to come in and say, I've got good news for you. We're giving you a viable alternative, which will not only improve your economics, it will improve your operations, you will, you will have less to worry about with safety. So for, for me selling the idea into China, it was more about if I could just get the other participants in the value chain to see that this is a better model for them, then I might be able to, to create a more balanced value chain where C-Trip is still gonna do very well, don't worry about C-Trip, and sure enough, they have. Um, but now the, the hotel brands will also be able to provide some sense of, of agency and autonomy to these owners and the guests who, even with C-Trip, had no idea what they were getting when they showed up in a hotel. Guests would have a better experience. They'd have some consistency, some quality ideas that they'd be able to assume they could receive if they could just book with a branded hotel. The problem was the model of economy motel chains did not exist in China. Um, there was a couple of local brands who weren't selling the idea very well at the time. And I was this crazy foreigner who speaks Chinese pretty well, and I would quote Mao, and I would, you know, and I would have bed-making competitions to celebrate the, you know, the poor downtrodden um, uh, uh, room service staff. I could tell them that when I was in college, I was a room service staff, so I was able to create rapport and association with people. I did all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, I took a page from Richard Branson's book, and I said, if I don't have any money, which I didn't have, uh, I had to be willing to make a fool of myself. And the way I made a not really a fool myself, but I was probably the first foreigner to run around the country quoting Mao, you know, wrench, draining the Yinsu, people are the deciding factor, or one spark can, can lead to a prairie fire. I used to go around and say these things, and it was nice 
to show respect to the culture. And it was something that local Chinese at the time couldn't do because it was considered very passe to quote Mao or to, you know, or to celebrate the worker because that was very much hearkening back to the old days. But the fact is, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Celebrating the, you know, the little guy or the little gal, it's, it's, just, it's just good human behavior. There's, there's no downside. And if you want to look at it, I suppose, more in a Machiavellian sense, it's also good business yeah. um, because you get a lot of tailwind when you create goodwill with people on a personal level. And uh, somewhere along the way, they decided, you know, this isn't such a bad idea. And maybe this foreigner um, who's, you know, already a friend of ours, we know him and he's a known quantity. I mean, I showed my respect. I came over early. I'm not like a late newcomer who came in and it was hot. You know, I came before it was fashionable, right? And, and when I showed up there, I, I did it the right way. I showed massive respect. But I mean, it was very important that everyone get that I'm coming in with something new. Yeah. And I'm valuable in that I'm bringing value. I'm not asking for value. Asking the basic question, what can I offer, was how we were able to scale. And I did it, and I did it in myriad ways. But the main way I did it was I made a lot of millionaires. It's a lot easier to go from from 800 GDP per cap to 8,000, or a lot lot harder to go from 800 to 8,000 GDP per cap than it is to go from 8,000 to 32,000, which is basically the club of 30. So they did a 10x so far, and now they're going to have to do a 4x, but off of a strong base. And by the way, it needs to be said that in the last 10 years, they have built the world's most robust, modern infrastructure, road, rail, high-speed trains, ports, airports, and the communications infrastructure that, that binds it all together is absolutely brand spanking new. You will never go to China and not have at least three bars on your on your, um, on your your 4G phone. And you'll also probably never go to China and go to a city that doesn't have a Super 8. Which <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud to say. Which, and the uh, payments as well. I mean, you and I know it well from all that time there. But I always say to people, you know, the first thing you should do is is get on YouTube and have a look at WeChat and have a look at what they're doing on their phone. and, and uh, 600 yeah. million mobile transactions a day, David. 600. 100 million. Let that number sink in. Mm. 600 million. They've basically made cash obsolete. They'll have cashless months. Unbelievable. They can do it. They can transact taxis, the little Xiaomai Bu, the little, um, uh, uh, you know, the little uh, kiosks that sell that sell drinks and, and orange pop and stuff like that. They can transact with WeChat everywhere now. There's not another country in the world that can even touch them. India tried, and at least on their first iteration, they didn't. They didn't get over the hump. They will eventually. There's only three countries in the world that that when you look at a 2,000-year chart of economic GDP proportion, stand out, really stand out. And and one of them is China, and one of them is India, and one of them is United States, where you see these three big, massive, colored areas. And I have the chart, and I can send it to you of uh, that chart. But but what that means is that these three countries have dominated world GDP for the last 2,000 years in one form. Yeah, there's been a lot of other countries that have been notable. Yeah. But, I mean, as far as which one's dominated, and, and it does need to be said that India is just getting started. And I'm on the board of a hospitality company in India, and I can tell you those guys have serious game. And what's one of the interesting opportunities for both China and India, just as a sidebar, not sure, is, is looking at the cooperation that they are going to be able to create in the future because they are literally next door to each other, as we saw recently with this issue in the Himalayas. They are now in a position where they have very complementary uh, technology uh, industries. I mean, India is leading the world in outsourcing and some of the things that are that are happening in IT. China is the Silicon Valley of hardware, and it's right across the border from us uh, here in Hong Kong in uh, Shenzhen. 
where Huawei and, and Tencent and Alibaba and all these guys have massive installations, massive. And they are basically going to be the Silicon Valley of hardware. And that's significant because the next stage of technological development is going to be in Internet of Things. It's going to be in artificial intelligence, which a lot of that's driven by hardware and sensors. There's going to be billions of sensors, all beta tested there. 20 years ago, I used to go into places like Dongguan and Panyu and places across the border a couple hours from Hong Kong. And I'd go on these places that, you know, these places like that dirt roads and, and just an endless sea of factories making leather goods, low-end stuff. And now you see these, these mega installations with super high-tech uh, stuff that you wouldn't possibly believe. You, and they are going to be dominating the hardware side of, of tech. And India is, to a large degree, going to be dominating the service side because they're a low-cost provider. And the U.S., of course, will continue to be very relevant in Silicon Valley with the software and the ideas. Innovation and, yeah. And, and innovation. But, I mean, but a lot of the things that are going to be driving the next stage are, and there's only two mega trends in the world today, really, and that's technology and globalization. Now you look at which countries have a stake in both of those. China has the most direct stake in both of those because they are really the low-cost provider for, well, this, this infrastructure they just built over the last 10 years also makes them the low-cost provider of scaled infrastructure projects for the developing world. Mm. So Africa, South America, South Asia, and even in India, they can provide massive infrastructure installations. They can turnkey 300,000 Chinese workers plopping in there with the cranes and the machinery and build a port, you know, yeah. and, and they can do it cheaper than the local countries can, and they finance it. Mm-hmm. Because they have their own World Bank now. So, I mean, sure. so when you put it all together, it looks pretty compelling what can be seen as far as how technology and globalization is going to be used to drive their next level of development. But the biggest driver of all is going to be the Chinese domestic economy and the consumer. It's very important to realize that in their 5,000 year history, China only became a predominantly, that is, more than 50% urbanized population in 2012. Now, let that sink in for a minute. 5,000 years of written history, and it was 2012 that China became predominantly urbanized, first time ever. 2013 was the first time that they ever um, had a more than 50% GDP driven from consumer spending on services and consumer spending. They've always had consumer economy, but it's never been predominant. These two things happening one year after the other for the first time in 5,000 years is not something we should ignore. It is, in fact, what's driving the 2.0 of China's development, and it's going to be way more exciting, and there's way more ways to participate. But this level of Chinese development is not them attracting foreign investment or needing our technology or needing whatever. They now have a self-sustaining fusion generator of their own economy, and it's way less risky than the last 30 years. I mean, it's funny. People talk about the risks of China, and I'm like, man, if you had any idea how much less risky it is, I was literally a one in a hundred shot. I am a human Hail Mary for what I did. It's not a Hail Mary anymore to say you're going to do something in China, but you're not going to make money in China. You're going to make money with China because China now drives their own their own money-making thing. And the best thing you can do is, is find ways to add value. Ask what you can give. Gotcha. Align with your principles that you, uh, you outlined for us exactly. earlier. You've almost answered my next question. I think the first time we met, I, th- I think I said to you, man, what are you doing? Like, why aren't you back in the States drinking Mai Tai or something? I mean, obviously, Super 8, <laughs> Super 8 was so successful. I mean, what, you know, and obviously now 
you've got into into our game and you're in, you're in funds management. So interested in pivoting into that business and you know why what attracted you in in I presume it's a huge opportunity which you you, you stressed before. But you know, please tell me about the fund and, and why you're so excited and, and, and have joined it. Well, I'll tell you, uh, I arrived in '88. I went all in because I didn't have a safety net, um, and I made a big bet on China. The biggest bet I could make my career, my life, my time, my energy. I've never regretted it for a second. I was ready to pull chocks and go back to the States. I don't need the money anymore, uh, thankfully, knock on wood. Uh, no one gave it to me. Believe me, it was literally like bending a spoon mentally trying to make this work. Mm-hmm. But it did work, thank God, and here I am. So I was ready to pull chucks. I bought a house near my folks, my sisters and their families, and my folks all live um, no longer in, 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 in Brooklyn. We're in, um, we're in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, a beautiful place in the States, which is about six hours south of Washington, D.C. on the East Coast. Fantastic. And we have uh, beautiful beaches and beautiful mountains, and my sister has a beach house there, and, and we've got a piece of land in, uh, in the mountains there and, and I was thinking this is going to be great I'm just going to go back and I'm just going to relax and I already went all in and what else do I have to prove and I'll come back and I'll, I'll be received like a friend of China and it'll be wonderful and I'll have a couple nice dinners and I'll just do what I've seen a lot of other people do but it just didn't sit right mm-hmm. and now I know why I decided to double down I went all in again I took a significant portion of my nav my net net worth, and I and I poured it into uh, a China A share hedge fund that I got to know a few years ago. After 25 years having never put a single penny in the China public equities markets, I decided I wanted to uh, roll that in because I actually believe that this is the time to double down. I think that this is the China 2.0 story that will happen. Uh, my 30 years of instinct and. Uh, and my belief in, in, in megatrends, I believe, will prove out. And so far, it's proved to be true. Um, and I'm hoping that continues. I can only tell you this. Aligned interests are going to save the world. And the U.S. Um, is, is the reigning world power. And China is, 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 on the, is on the coming up. There's something called the Thucydides Trap. Uh, it's, a, it's exactly this kind of case. And there's been 16 cases in history. I think 16 or 17. China, China markets are now trading at 2007 levels. I do note that the PE uh, ratios right now are the lowest we've seen in forever, and which is which is appropriate because because the uh, price to earnings growth ratios have also come down quite a bit. So sure. I mean, you know, and there was a time you only looked at PEG, you really didn't want to look at PE. It was an inappropriate uh, measure for uh, for a nascent economy like China. But now that now that they have massive companies and massive scale, I mean, just the other day I tweeted out about a Chinese liquor company called uh, Guizhou Mao Taizhou uh, Zonggongsi. Uh, it's the it can, in English it's it's, it's spelled Guizhou Mao Tai Group Holding Company or something. And what people don't realize about this company that they've never heard of is it's now the largest liquor company in the world. It surpassed Diageo in 2017 April. Yeah, a company they've never heard of. Nobody's ever heard. Have you ever heard of Quito? Well, you have. I have. But you have. Of course, you have because you're you know because you're an old hand too. But but this company is now the most valuable liquor company in the world, and it's listed on the A share 
index in Shanghai, <laughs> a market which theoretically you and I, unless we go through an institution like the fund that I'm attached to, you could never have access to directly because it's only available to domestic Chinese at the moment. And we access it, our firm does, and all the other firms do, through something called QFII, Qualified Foreign Institutional Investor, which is a category that was created in 2003 to allow foreign institutions to trade on a very small volume basis under a quota with a lot of supervision, uh, the Chinese A-share markets. But there are massive companies now, massive world's largest market cap companies in several different areas that are now listed on these companies and they're just getting bigger. Oh, and by the way, there's $7 trillion of dry powder in Chinese bank accounts waiting for the next boom. It just has to be said. There's $7 trillion worth of, of money sitting on the sidelines waiting for the next boom. And I don't call them timing on markets, but I do just look at indicators and the number of green arrows and red arrows. It's a, it's a positive... It's a positive confluence right now from a purely analytical standpoint, and my 30 years in China, just from a qualitative standpoint, uh, tells me my you know my, my, my Brooklyn nose is telling me that this looks interesting. So I don't call markets. I'm not recommending anything to anyone what they should do. I'm just telling you what I'm doing, which is I'm seeing a confluence that I find positive enough where I was willing to come in and get into something that I had never gotten involved in the, uh, the public equity markets of China. Fantastic. Mitch, you've obviously, you've been very involved in China a long time. For, for people who are just starting to look at China or want to continue looking at China, what's the best way they should be with you? I mean, obviously, you know, we're friends on Twitter. You know, what's the best way to follow what you're doing and, and your, your advice? Well, they can always follow me at, at M-I-T-C-H-P-R-E-S-N-I-C-K, at Mitch Presnick. They can always follow me there and they can always reach out to me directly. I'm, I'm always happy to try to, to guide people. My mentor, the fellow that that um, that my great uncle Mike, may he rest in peace, became friends with in 83, was an American guy named Sidney Rittenberg. He's known as the man who stayed behind. And Sidney became my beloved China mentor for the entire time. He picked me up at the airport when I arrived on August 8th. Uh, well, he sent someone, you know. <laughs> but it was kind of cool. And I remember yeah. driving in from the airport, literally the guy had uh, no they didn't have the, it was nighttime and, and they didn't have their headlights on and I asked them why and he said oh because we're saving gas and that was the China I arrived but anyway Sydney um, always told me and it's still the best advice I've ever received on being successful in China he said you must bring three things to China uh, to be successful there patience respect and three times the preparation that you would normally do for another country now what that means in, in terms of the practical application of what that means? Well, the preparation part means you really need to understand what you're bringing and what's your unique selling proposition. What do you bring that's valuable that they don't already have or how are you bringing qualities to an idea that they're familiar with that are unique and different? You must also be looking very carefully at your partners and how you do these things. The preparation is where that all comes in. The patience and the respect, it just makes sure you don't get you know, thrown out or that they won't just stymie you because they can so easily stymie you. It isn't lost on me that my 1,200 Super 8 hotels in China were developed completely with the assent of the Chinese people because if they wanted to at any time, they could have just flicked me out. The fact that they didn't is something that's a great source of pride for me because they obviously had lots of reasons to not allow some foreign kid to show up there without any money and build a national brand. But I believe that when you're going into that market, you bring patience, respect, and three times the preparation, but specifically 
the three times the preparation, how you partner, looking at it, being able to step back and do the 30,000 foot view, the macro view of what's happening, the, the granular view, specifically how you're going to enter the market, where and why and on what specific strategy. It all has to make sense from lots of ways that you might not be thinking uh, for other markets. But it's worth the time and the effort to do it because China is not going anywhere but up right now. And they are they are three-time champions of the world economy, and I think they're about to take the fourth. So it makes a lot of sense for us to figure out how to do business with these good folks. Yeah. Mitch, that was amazing. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. You're very welcome. Thank you, and, and uh, look forward to being in touch. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewees and guests featured and may not reflect those of Foresight Bar Limited or Foresight Bar Asia. This podcast is produced for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Foresight Bar or Foresight Bar Asia may have investments in the companies mentioned in this podcast.